6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 9 and 10. But I love what happens, verse 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and a great fear fell upon them who saw them. Boy, I can imagine that was an event. I imagine it was primetime TV. I can imagine the world getting coverage on that one. And that's got to be interesting. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. This isn't some secret thing. It's out. Big deal. The Lord knows how to do a PR stunt when he wants to. That's great. As a great earthquake, and the 10th part of the city fell, and on it goes. Now, it's interesting, who are, everybody talks about, who are these two witnesses? And everybody has their theories. Well, if you examine verses 5 and 6, you discover that they have four gifts, specific powers. They can call down fire from heaven. They can shut the heaven so that it does not rain. They can turn water into blood and call all manner of plagues down. Well, it's kind of interesting. If you study about calling fire down from heaven, there's one guy in the Old Testament who did it three times. A guy by the name of Elijah. Did it at Mount Carmel quite impressively. He did it twice again. Well, we didn't we'll take the time now because the time will be getting short. But 2 Kings chapter 1. Twice they send 50 guys there to come and he brings down fire, consumes 50 guys. They send another 50. Finally, he agrees to come, but he causes him a little attrition before that happens. The second thing that Elijah is famous for is that he shut the heavens so it would not rain. Now, it says here that he's going to do it again, that they have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. How long is their prophecy? Back in verse 1, 1,203 score days. That's three and a half years. How long was it that Elijah shut the heavens in the days of Ahab? Three and a half years. How do we know? Because James tells us, the Lord tells us in Luke 4, twice in the New Testament, by two witnesses, it's confirmed, it's not only that he did it, but he did it for a very, what I think is a very interesting period of time. That's James 5.17 and Luke 4.25, for those of you who may want to chase that down. The Ahab event was in 1 Kings 17. So that's two of the four. Water into blood. Who turned water into blood? Everybody knows that. Charlton Heston did it there in front of you. Right? Okay. Exodus 7.19, for you want a more, if you want a non-demill reference for that. All manner of plagues. Exodus 8 through 12. You all have that. Okay. Now. Some people say they think the two witnesses are Elijah, because he didn't die, and Enoch, because he didn't die. And uh, that's fine, except I got a problem. And, oh, they based, the, they based the logic on Hebrews 9.27, which says it is appointed to man but once to die, and after this the judgment. And the only two people that didn't die were Enoch and Elijah. Therefore, they're the two witnesses. Have a problem with that. I think the principle on Hebrews 9.27 is a principle. To, it's a denial of reincarnation. Any of you have reincarnation yearnings, read Hebrews 9.27. It's point of man but wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Are there exceptions? Yes, Lazarus. How many times did Lazarus die? Twice. Twice. He rose, remember? The Lord raised him once. And after that, the Pharisees had to make sure that he was put to death. 
that comes as a plot and that, that thought, thought, and then you dig that out of the gospel. Widow of Nain's son. How many times did he die? Twice. Peter, you know, raised once and down. Um, the, um, so forth. There's another observation. About, incidentally, so that's why I think Enoch, um, we're going to talk about Enoch in another session or so. But there's another thing about Enoch that doesn't qualify him for this ministry. He wasn't Jewish. Interesting, huh? So you can run with that one if you like. Now, what's my final proof that these are the two witnesses? They had a staff meeting. Matthew 17. They met to talk about it all. Now, by the way, I, 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 I'm sort of having fun up here. I don't want to sell this too hard. Good scholars have all kinds of opinions. Scholars better than I have different views. So, so it doesn't, I'm not really trying to sell it this hard. I'm just having a little fun. But I, I do have the view, but it's just a view, that it is uh, Moses and Elijah. It'll probably turn out to be two other guys. I'm all wrong. So, so uh, you know, uh, Acts 17:11 still pertains, you know. Uh, Luke told you not to believe anything Chuck Mister tells you. But check the scripture yourself. And what's fun about this isn't that I'm right or wrong. Your search will be in the scripture. So if you're interested in this thing, you find it interesting, dig into the scripture. And uh, uh, that's, that's really what I, uh, I... I would not have you accept my view. I would have you search the scriptures daily to prove whether these things would be so. Because you get a blessing whether or not I'm right or wrong. Lord, you'll see to it. Okay, and Matthew 17 actually starts a verse early. There's a, the chapter breaks in fortune. In Matthew 16, 20, it says, Verily I say unto you, there shall some standing here shall not, shall, that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this is, they're going to see a prophetic insight here. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John. These are always the inside three, Peter, James, and John. Up into a high mountain. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine like the sun. His raiment was as white as light. So something happens to him that is extremely dramatic that leaves them all very impressed, so impressed that Peter in his epistles makes reference to this. If you want to find out what happened here, you can read Peter's letters. He makes reference to this. When behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with them. How do they know they're Moses and Elijah? I have no idea. There's no comment how they recognize him. Would Peter and James and John have seen Known Elijah walking down the street? I don't think so. But somehow they knew. That's not an issue. They all recognized Moses and Elijah somehow. Then answered Peter and said, and Peter, you know, he's the foot and mouth disease guy. If you, you know, if you, if you, if you don't understand it, speak, you know. Uh, the, the, and Peter says, the Lord is good. He's one of these, you know, ready, fire, aim guys. Um, then Peter said unto Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three booths. Or tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now that's clumsy for lots of reasons, not the least of which it implies they're equals. And that's where he's really got a faux pas here. He wise spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud. What's the cloud? The Shekinah glory, right? Said, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. So he made, you know, he got uh, right pulled on him there a little bit. What's interesting about this is if we turn to Luke 9.31, and maybe we should do that. Keep your place here because we'll come back to this, but Luke 9.31 is a reference to this. Uh, the Matthew reference is uh, full, but it, it misses a few subtle things. In Luke 9.31, 9.30 said, Behold, the two talked with him. Were, is this, it's, it's the parallel account in Luke of the transfiguration. Uh, the two men talked to him, Moses and Elijah, right? Who appeared in glory and what? Spoke of his decease or departure. It's not really deceased like dying. His departure. Exodus. Is the, 
which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So we don't know whether it's crucifixion or his ascension, but the point is it's certainly his, it's a prophetic discussion. It's a prophetic discussion between Moses and Elijah and the Lord. They're speaking of what's about to happen shortly thereafter. So this little staff being is prophetic. What's also kind of interesting to do is uh, turn with me to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter. Peter was there. Let's see what he says in his letter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is hard to really get it all out of here, but the, the whole first chapter is on this, but I'm just going to focus on verses 10, 11, and 12, where Peter says, "...of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them did signify when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow." If you study this passage, you will see that what he's talking about is that event, and he's talking about his sufferings and the glory that shall follow. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, and Peter in his second letter is also preoccupied with this event that he witnessed in the transfiguration. And we'll pick this up about chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse, let's say verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor, Peter says, that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point he's talking about, the second coming. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him with the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What's Peter talking about? His baptism at the Jordan? No, he's talking about this transfiguration. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So my point is, is not only did Moses and Elijah appear with Christ at the transfiguration, the discussion had to do with the second coming. That's why I, I see them as, as having a relationship. Now, now I'm going to now share with you, since this is, I should love to share this because I thought it was speculative. At this point, I'm so convinced of it, I think it's solid. I have to go out a little bit further. I'm indebted to a friend of mine, so I'm going I'm to label what I'm about to share with you, because it's not original with me, as the Wetmore hypothesis, okay? So if it's right, I'll be glad to take credit for it, but if it's wrong, we'll blame Doug for it. He pointed out to me an interesting idea because where was Moses buried? At the foot of Mount Pisgah. Where was Elijah taken up by the whirlwind? In the valley that's before Mount Pisgah. Is it possible that the Mount Transfiguration isn't up in Galilee where the tourist guides always point? It's Mount Pisgah. Is it possible that this staff meeting took place with our Lord on the very mountain that Moses saw last and that Elijah was there last. And they're meeting with the Lord there. And how interesting it is, remember I told you to keep your place in Matthew 17, I hope you did, because it's in Matthew 17 after the transfiguration that the Lord says in verse 20, Jesus said to them, they have an incident where they're very powerless and he's, he has to take care of it. And they, they asked him privately, they came to private, why couldn't we not cast out this particular situation? In verse 20, Jesus said to him, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, 
Move from here to yonder place, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Which mountain was he pointing to? The mountain they were just on. Kind of neat. Hmm? Now, everybody knows that Mount Trans Transfiguration was in Galilee. Oh, really? Turn with me to Mark. <laughs> Chapter 9. The Transfiguration is recorded in Mark 9. And then they have this powerless disciple incident, just like Luke shows. And yet to verse 30, you notice something. They departed from there and passed through Galilee. That's to the north and to the west. My premise is they couldn't be in Galilee and depart and go to Galilee. They had to be someplace other than Galilee. And my suggestion to you is that they're east of the Jordan in the land of Moab, where, Mo where both Moses and Elijah made their departure. But it's just a suggestion. Elijah's translation is across the Jordan, east of Jericho, 2 Kings 2. Moses' sepulcher is at Beth Peor, the base of Mount Nebo or Mount Pisgah. Deuteronomy 34, we looked at that. Is that the same mountain? I don't know. Leave that with you as just a little teaser. But let's get back to business. What's Jude's point? Does he really care about Revelation 11? Not at this stage. Jude is really making a point that we, we, we have at least now, if we haven't really given you any insight, we've at least trampled to death the, uh, the, the uh, Michael, Satan, Moses issue. There seems in my own mind there's some kind of a link between Moses' body and the, his future role. I think we have the law. I think we will see two witnesses surface. They will represent the law and the prophets in a uniquely Jewish ministry, which is what the time of Jacob trouble is all about. And, uh, and God is setting the stage for that. And Satan understands that. And so anything you can do to thwart that would be in his interest. And uh, none other than Michael staves him off. But Jude's point through all this isn't to get into these byroads. Jude's point is, here is Michael on a mission for the Lord, contesting with Satan over the body of Moses, and Satan's opposing the Lord's mission. Even there, he doesn't bring railing accusation against Satan. That's got to be the most extreme example Jude could have uh, presented to us for humility. And, and uh, what, is, what does Michael do here? Didn't, dared not bring rail, against him railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. See, it's after this kind of thing I get uncomfortable with some of these casual songs that are popular within the Christian community that tend to, to not treat Satan as a dignity. You say, Chuck, you got to be kidding. Well, my authority is Jude 9. In that Satan is Satan. We shouldn't make him bigger than he is. We shouldn't treat him trivially. We also shouldn't fear them only because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's our only basis for not trembling before that personage. I think it's a terrible warning against speaking evil. Now, we live in a time where it's very fashionable to speak evil against God's people. Bringing accusations against institutions that uh, honor the Lord and that are honored by Him. And these are acts that point to falling away from the gospel rather than being in subjection to it. And that's basically why we're dealing with this. Earlier in Jude, he says we should contend for the faith, but he doesn't say be contentious. They're different issues. Now, incidentally, Michael said, the Lord rebuke thee. Always in the mouths of two witnesses, the things established. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, 
there's a phrase, it's a little different situation, but I'm fascinated that the Holy Spirit has chosen to be as precisely structured as we are here. Uh, Zechariah 3, 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord who hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Interesting phrase. The Lord rebuke thee. Same phrase. Putting it where it belongs. Okay. Michael's words, getting back to Jude 9, Michael's words were restricted. Another aspect of this. Michael's words were restricted to his adversary alone. If you bring criticism, do you do it privately, one-on-one? -on -one? First? Hope so. If words are publicized, there's no one can tell how far it will go, how twisted it'll become, or what harm it will ultimately do. The minute it's public, it's out of your control. You make a criticism. Is it private, one-on-one? -on -one? I can squeeze in verse 10, and we can that'll prepare us for a wild time next time. Verse 10 is really a, a continuation of this, because verse 10 is a wrap-up. But these speak evil of the, these being the apostates that Jude is railing about here. These speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. Summary thing. There's one thought that links verses 8, 9, and 10, railing at dignities. Okay? We have the archangel who was dealing with Satan himself, possessing a more perfect knowledge than ours, who did dared not speak in judgment. These guys rail at whatsoever things they know not. And apostate does not hesitate to speak out in condemnation concerning matters which he does not know enough to make him a judge over others. The word rail, by the way, we speak railing of dignities. The Greek word is blasphemeo, transliterates, blaspheme. That's what the word rail comes, means. It means to vilify, speak re reproachfully, to calumniate, to insult. Now these guys, uh, it says, they speak of things they know not. And we've already seen uh, 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2, so we'll take the time for that right now. Also in this verse, there are two words for knowing. The word oida, which is a deep, intimate knowledge, and the word episteo, which means perception by, like by animal senses or faculties. Unreasoning beasts have a knowledge of the natural world, but not an understanding thereof. That's the premise. Only a superficial of any understanding. And so here we have, these speak evil of those things which they know not, they oida not. But what they know naturally, that is what they, episteo, they have the, the physics inside of a pet or something. Three marks in of apostasy are here again. Uh, they defile and they're corrupted and so forth. So what Jude is saying is the apostate limits himself to mere natural knowledge, he rails at the truth, and finally perishes eternally at his own corruption. These things, these, they speak evil of things which they know not, and as brute beasts, in those things which they, in those things they corrupt themselves. Well, that leaves us now. That's great. That sets me up, see, for next time, for verse 11. That's your, that is your assignment. Verse 11 structurally is the pivotal verse of the whole epistle. There's a downward acceleration that we've noticed here in terms of the, you know, the, uh, uh, the three steps. And here we're going to find a, three examples. 
Now, these illustrations that we're going to see here are between illustrations from the supernatural realm, that was verse 9 that we just looked at, and illustrations from the natural realm, which will be verses 12 and 13. Verse 11 is between 9 and 12 and 13. It's also preceded by apostasy in history. That was verses 5, 6, and 7. Remember? The uh, Israel and the angels that sinned and Sodom and Gomorrah. Apostasy in history. And it's going to be followed by apostasy and prophecy. So that's the structure there. It gives us personal, individual examples to follow those that we already have in a corporate sense. And that's going to involve three interesting studies. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Three individuals are mentioned here. Those of you that have the time and the inclination of the Lord, if the Spirit leads you, do your background on Cain in Genesis 4. We all know the story of Cain and Abel. Abel was a shepherd, offered a lamb. Cain was a farmer, offered his fruit. Cain wasn't accepted. Abel was. Cain got upset, killed Abel. Is it that simple? Why was Abel a shepherd? I thought, didn't think they ate meat then. Didn't eat meat then. That comes after the flood. So what's the shepherd doing there? You chew on that one. What made Abel's offering an offering of faith that Cain's was not? Those are issues we'll deal with next time. Balaam, now here is a character. If you want to read an interesting story, get into Numbers 22 through 25 and 31 are the main chapters on this character by the name of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet. How much of a prophet? He prophesied the Christmas star. We're celebrating Christmas. We talk about the star of Bethlehem. There are some scholars that believe that the star was first prophesied by Balaam. But Balaam's a character. He's greedy. Does it for hire. And you talk about getting put down. The Lord has his donkey put him down. Now that's a put down. <laughs> Balaam, interesting character. And we have the error of Balaam, the doctor of Balaam, and, and so forth. There's different dimensions as he shows up in the book of Revelation as an allusion by our Lord in one of his letters. Several times, I believe. Balaam. What is Jude talking about Balaam? What's all this about? And how does it affect you and I? Because Cain and Balaam do mistakes that you and I have a high likelihood of being guilty of, at least in part. So you want to understand what that is. Cain's easier. Balaam's tougher. Maybe. And then there's a guy by the name of Korah. You all remember Edward G. Robinson at the end of, you know. Um, anyway, um, that may be before. This is, I can't use those illusions anymore. It's before your time, most of you. Um, Korah. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Korah shows up in number 16, for those of you who want to dig into that. We'll also uh, get into, a few, we won't uh, be stuck just to uh, stay just with verse 11. We'll carry it down through these five word pictures. There's five fascinating, mystical, strange word pictures that follow these three characters, but I won't have you do homework on those. It's too complicated. And we'll get into, uh, what do you mean twice dead? and so forth. There's some five interesting word pictures in verses 12 and 13. And, uh, and then we'll get into Enoch. That's a whole other thing. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Those of you that have time, gee, I almost have time to take you to Jeremiah 10, but I don't really want to spoil your Christmas. If you haven't, if you haven't read Jeremiah 10, put your tongue in your cheek and read it to your kids at Christmas. No, don't do that. You'll spoil it.
Jeremiah 10 talks about uh, bringing a tree in the house and trimming it and bowing down to it. And, and uh, he's obviously talking about idol worship. Uh, I think having a little indulgence and nostalgia is not quite the same thing. So uh, in answer to some of the questions I'll get after you break up, yes, we have a Christmas tree in our house. Huh? So uh, I don't want to put anyone on a serious guilt trip on that stuff, but it is kind of fun to get around. And I may be wrong. It may be very serious, and maybe you shouldn't have a Christmas tree. I'll let you search the Scriptures daily to prove whether those things are so. Very strange uh, lesson tonight. Uh, we've had a little fun with it, but uh, it's, it's kind of um, important, I think, that we not leave without recognizing that Michael is a real person. He's not some abstract concept, a label for some broad force or something. He's a person, has a name. He does things on command. He has successes, maybe some setbacks. He's, he's live and real. Happens to be an angel, and he has some very bizarre missions, but uh, he's real. So is his adversary. His adversary is extremely powerful. The contest we read about is not an abstraction, it's real. The body of Moses is a tangible body. The whole thing is, is, uh, has a reality. It's easy to lose as we get into ideas and, and, and uh, concepts. Just to, to, we, it's easy for us to not appreciate the, the realities here. Moses and Elijah, if I'm correct, are going to return to the planet Earth. It may not be far away. It may not be the day after tomorrow, but I have lots of reasons why I have a perception it won't be many decades. It's in the near-term horizon. The, the message that Jude has for us is, um, as we increasingly become aware, is an end-time message. Yes, he spoke about apostasy throughout the last 19 centuries of the church age, but his specific message, as we will see, especially when we get to Enoch, is for our day. And what you and I need to do is pray, get in the Word, and be extremely sensitive to what the Lord would speak to us individually about. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.